Don't pay retail for your diamond engagement ring or gift. Come to CleanOrigin.com. Founded by a leading family in the diamond industry for more than a century, we're experts in lab-grown diamonds because that's all we do. Clean Origin, the only diamond jewelers who give you a 100-day, no-questions-asked return on your purchase. Head to CleanOrigin.com or one of our retail stores and mention code RADIO10 for 10% off your purchase. That's CleanOrigin.com, code RADIO10. When we think of weather, climate, and oceanography, one of the main organizations that comes to mind in the United States is NOAA, the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. Today, we want to dive into the O in that acronym and look at the role NOAA plays with our planet's oceans. Who better than former acting administrator of NOAA, Rear Admiral, retired Timothy Gallaudet, formerly of the U.S. Navy. He has almost two decades of service in the Navy and was also appointed as commander of the Naval Meteorological and Oceanographic Command. Welcome, Rear Admiral Gallaudet. Hey, Marshall, it's great to be here. So it's, it, it really is an honor. If, for those of you that have been with Weather Geeks for a while, you may, may remember Admiral Gallaudet from the TV show. He, he appeared on that show and is always someone that I enjoy talking with because he just brings a wealth of knowledge from both the civilian and the military perspective on ocean science, weather, and so forth. And as you heard, uh, he's actually the former acting administrator of NOAA. I believe he served in that role um, for uh, two or so years from October 2017 to around February of 2019. Let me give you a little of the background on Admiral Gallaudet before I ask him the big question of how he got into ocean and weather science. As a PhD from Scripps Institution of Oceanography uh, for marine acoustics, also has a master's degree from Scripps and a BS in oceanography from the United States Naval Academy. Uh, he was the acting undersecretary of commerce for oceans and atmosphere and administrator of NOAA, as I said, from October 2017 to February 2019. He's also a retired rear admiral in the United States Navy. He was active in the Navy from 1989 to 2017. Uh, he was also, I believe, the oceanographer of the Navy, among many other uh, things that he did in that role. Tim, thank you. So, you know, I always ask our guests, how did you become a weather geek? But I guess in this case, how did you become an ocean geek? Or perhaps there's a weather geek hidden in there, too. Well, there's both, Marshall. Uh, I grew up in Southern California. And I went to the beach a lot. I was a swimmer, a surfer, and I just fell in love with the ocean from my first uh, memories of, of, of being in it. And so uh, that really drove me to go to the Naval Academy and study oceanography. Uh, that was really, I wasn't necessarily fixed on joining the Navy. I, I wanted to study our oceans and the Naval Academy has a great undergraduate program. And then, you know, things just happened. I, I had an immediate job upon graduation in the Navy as an oceanographer and I loved it. So uh, I've stuck with it. And part of the job in the Navy of an oceanographer is to do meteorology as well. And so I've been, a, I'm a practicing meteorologist. I forecast weather for many Navy units. And uh, so I love both of them. I'm an ocean and weather geek. Yeah, and that, that, that makes sense for why you would have been such a, um, a natural leader there in NOAA, which is the, the agency that deals primarily with weather and ocean in this country. And we're going to kind of deal with all of that. Um, you said you sort of went into the Navy for the reasons that you mentioned. Uh, how has your career with Navy uh, in the Navy allowed you to participate in and learn things about our oceans? I mean, again, you are an oceanographer. One, one thing, Tim, I'd, I'd like for you to do for our listeners 
I think our listeners probably have a good sense of what a meteorologist does or even what a climatologist does. Can you just give them a 101 for what an oceanographer generally does and perhaps what one does for the Navy? Interestingly, Marshall, it's just like what, what meteorologists do, but for the oceans. The ocean has weather, currents and circulation and changes in salinity. And then there's the whole biological component, which is very interesting. And all of that is, is dynamical and moves. And so that's what, what we do. We study the processes of the ocean, much like meteorologists do in the atmosphere. And uh, and then what's great about the, the disciplines are very similar. Uh, the ocean moves a lot slower, though. Um, but it's also, I'd say, more powerful, especially when you think about the ability to absorb carbon. Uh, and that's a, a really important topic when you talk about climatology. So it, they're sampling. You know, you do measurements and observations. You do predictions with models. And, uh, and so it's just an exciting field. It's just a little more wet. Yeah, you know, I, I know as someone that has been in, on various advisory positions with uh, NOAA, I often would hear folks talk about the wet side and the dry side of NOAA. Now, you served, and, and, and make sure I, we get this right, there was a time during the previous administration where you actually were serving as the acting administrator of NOAA. What, what did that role entail? Right. So I was the head of the agency for, uh, like you said, almost a year and a half. And well, I loved it, actually. It was great. That, that, that job is you have a number of functions. One is overseeing all the operations, the programming, the policy of the entire agency that has so much going on, flying satellites, driving ships, doing great science in every area from the seafloor to the sun. And uh, and then there's there's the kind of, um, you know, the interaction with headquarters, if you will, the Department of Commerce for us. And so they are working for the Secretary of Commerce. That's the big job of the administrator to, to ensure that you're going in the direction he wants you to go. And uh, and then that's so those are the big jobs there. Uh, my favorite job, though, was leadership, leading the agency and, and being making our people feel valued. Uh, interestingly, you know, I, I think uh, if, if you kind of go around the deck plates of NOAA, if you will, uh, I think they, they felt pretty valued by uh, by myself and Dr. Jacobs, who also led the agency with me, because uh, we because we understood we spoke their language. We were scientists, and uh, and that, I, I made it a priority to connect with them and make sure they knew they were valued and did good work. Yeah, and I, I think that's so important. We're talking about Admiral Tim Gallaudet. And we're talking about his role and his service to the nation. First of all, thank you for that uh, and, and your role with the Navy, but also your service to the nation with NOAA and your continued service that we'll talk about in this podcast, because you're still very much a key player in what's going on. In terms of the oceans, which is, I know the sort of focus today, as someone that was in the Navy and someone that was at NOAA, what do you, Tim, see as the biggest challenges with our ocean and our climate system and perhaps our fisheries? I mean, just if you were to kind of, what are the things about the ocean that keep you up at night? Well, there's three things that I think uh, to address what's happening with the oceans. And, and uh, the first one is just understanding them. Uh, there's so much, there's so many science challenges and questions we still have. One of the programs that we initiated and still, and this current administration is carrying it forward in a great way, was uh, a national strategy to map, explore, and characterize the ocean using ships, deep diving, remotely operated vehicles, autonomous underwater vehicles, ocean gliders, which are, which are basically ocean drones. And so we launched a major effort. It had support from the White House. So it started with a summit in 2019 of all the agency leaders. 
And a big part of that was including the private sector because the private sector, like you see with SpaceX in space, you have ocean tech companies that have stepped up and have great capabilities. And no, I, we saw that and I led the effort to advance all these partnerships. One, for example, was with Victor Vescovo of Caladan Oceanic, who set the, the record deep dives and human operated submersible to all the five trenches in the oceans. And we partnered with him to get data from those missions because we, we really couldn't do it alone ourselves. And so ocean understanding is one. The right. second is ocean health. There are many uh, health, you know, ocean health challenges like harmful algal blooms, uh, ocean acidification from um, globe climate change. You have um, pressure on fisheries and illegal fishing that's happening mostly by China that are depleting fish stocks worldwide. And they're doing this in other countries exclusive economic zones. There's a wide array of ocean challenges, coral disease, coral bleaching. And uh, one of the things we didn't know was to address a variety of ocean health issues, restoring habitat, addressing the coral disease in Florida, uh, programs to monitor ocean acidification, programs to actually combat harmful algal blooms with new technologies. So we, we that, was a, that was the second big area. And the third area, so you have understanding, you have ocean health, is sustainable use. And that's what the blue economy is about. When they talk about the ocean and the coastal economy, sustainable use of the ocean. And what that means is things like marine transportation, but doesn't the transportation that doesn't harm marine mammals, for example. So ensuring that ships can still go and do what they do into U.S. ports, but ensuring that our marine mammal protection measures are met and, they, and ships don't interfere with their migration. It's things like uh, fishing and ensuring that we don't overfish. And we, so we set catch limits. It's uh, other economic areas like tourism and recreation, which is actually the biggest component of the blue economy. And, and so it's like our, our national parks and on the coasts and our national marine sanctuaries, which are underwater national parks. And Noah runs that wonderful office. And I've been in a scuba dove in many of those or several. And I just, uh, I, you know, so those, those are the three big areas, understanding health and sustainable use. <sighs> the comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car selling command center. Thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. And we are back on the Weather Geeks podcast. I'm Dr. Marshall Shepard, and I'm speaking with retired Rear Admiral Timothy Gallaudet about NOAA's role with oceans and just his general perspective as one of the nation's leaders and experts on oceans and climate and weather and so forth. Because uh, we're dealing with a lot. I think you know, your last answer there was really important because I think even if, you know, I'm, I'm here in the metro Atlanta area, I'm nowhere near the ocean right now, but the ocean affects my life in so many ways. When you talk about fisheries and how it regulates our climate system and fuels hurricanes and provides, you know, you know, life breathing sustenance for us here on the planet. So I, I, I think people oftentimes think, oh, if I don't live on the ocean, near the ocean or on the coast, um, you know, this is not really a concern. Let me give you a little bit more of, you know, what what Tim Gallaudet did, at least during NOAA, his NOAA tenure. Uh, he, uh, he directed NOAA support to the administration's Indo-Pacific strategy, oversaw NOAA's Arctic research operations engagement, and was leading the execution of NOAA science and technology strategies for artificial intelligence, unmanned systems, 
omics cloud and citizen science. So um, he, he in, in his role, had quite a, a, a bit of influence on what was going on in ocean science. I want to shift not only from the oceans to the coast, Tim. I mean, I mean it's certainly something that you think about. 40% of our nation's population, as last I checked, live near the coast. Uh, we've seen impacts from uh, a, a 2020 hurricane season with 30 named storms. Uh, we are, as we're taping this in early August, approaching uh, the peak of the hurricane season. Uh, there are sea level issues. There are saltwater intrusion issues, overfishing. What comes to mind or what, what message do you convey to policymakers or stakeholders when we think about coastal communities? Yeah, I think the biggest thing is partnerships and collaboration. You have a lot of conflicts happening on our coast right now. A great example is offshore wind farms. You know, the, this administration to, to combat climate change has is moving towards a low to zero carbon energy uh, a portfolio. And to developing offshore wind farms is one of those ways to get at that and reduce our fossil fuel uh, energy reliance. Well, uh, there, there are these fisheries in New England and all across the country, actually, that can be severely uh, degraded if we don't work together. And that's really important. I mean, you have the scallop fishery worth uh, upwards of $100 million in New England a year. And, uh, and, then, and then there are wind farm uh, plans that are right in the middle of, of their, their fishing grounds. So we have to we have to have discussions and work together. And that, that's um and that's evolving. But the, you see that really in any area. So, for example, tourism and recreation, you know, over too many peoples tend to you know, cause degradation to different habitats like corals. And so how do you how do you properly balance sustainable use like I talk about and, and um, as well as conservation? And, and that that involves partnerships and just you know, people collaborating together. So that's actually now you mentioned it. The National Science Foundation has a, a, a request for proposals. Uh, and they call it the Network Blue Economy uh, proposal effort. And, uh, and I'm with I'm with I've submitted with a team a proposal to establish an American Blue Economy Institute. And we'll see if it gets accepted. But the idea would be like NOAA's cooperative institutes, a, a, a kind of a consortium of universities and a few companies that will work together to facilitate these discussions. Uh, and you know, there's just a wide range of competing uses. Aquaculture. Aquaculture is going to be the key to sustainable fisheries in the future. But then I guess you don't want to put, cite these facilities in areas where there might be um, endangered species or, you know, so that, that there's, there's these conversations that have to happen to find win-win solutions. Now, Tim, you mentioned something earlier, just in your remarks there, it just kind of brought this back to the forefront of my mind. You mentioned the importance of stakeholder engagement, partnerships, and so forth. I know, and I saw an op-ed that you recently published, I believe in the Washington Post, was that right? That's right. You were talking about the importance of private sector partnerships in both, I guess, weather and also oceanographic, climate-related sciences. So first of all, talk to us about the main points that you made in that op-ed in the Washington Post. And then I also saw some breaking news perhaps this week about you partnering with a new company or organization. I'd love to hear more about that and and the work you're doing with tomorrow.io as well. But we'll get to that a little bit later. Talk about your point of your uh, op-ed and why you wrote that. Yeah, well, so when, thank you, Marshall. When I uh, was at NOAA, we realized that, uh, you know, we really had to up our game in a wide range of areas. And, um, and we couldn't do it alone. 
And in fact, uh, I used in that op-ed a story and I talked about uh, my experience on the Gulf Coast, Mississippi's Gulf Coast, when my house was washed away in 28 feet of storm surge from Hurricane Katrina. Yes, the highest storm surge on the coast was in my neighborhood of South Diamond. Yeah, we came back to a slab and we had to crawl over a lumber pile, basically a debris field that was smashed up against I-10 that that was formerly our neighborhood. So that was a pretty heavy experience, but it gives me a great appreciation for the fine forecasters at the National Weather Service because they saved our lives. And uh, but also, you know, there were things like hurricane intensification. We weren't getting well. We've been improving steadily our track accuracy, and we had some amazing results. And I, I, I have links, uh, hyperlinks in that op-ed to the the news releases of our incredible track accuracy forecast at the National Hurricane Center. But the intensification we we had to improve upon. And so we realized there was a growing um, in in not only weather but also in the ocean. Um, capability out there in the private sector. And so we realized public-private partnerships with academia were the key, you know, and we're, we're all of us working together doing more than we could alone or separately. And so, um, for example, I mentioned some ocean partnerships. We I mentioned uh, Victor Vescovo of Caladan. We also started working with Ocean X, which is like a SpaceX for the ocean. And uh, Ray Dalio is is uh, it runs that. And, um, and there were others too. Uh, and in the weather side of the house, uh, we turned. Uh, we developed this epic, the Earth Prediction Innovation Center program, and just recently uh, we announced the award to Raytheon, and they have a sub company called Tomorrow.io that is very innovative with their weather intelligence platform, and they have plans for space. You know, they're going to launch a constellation of 34 radar-equipped satellites that are going to allow us to detect precipitation, map precipitation, as well as sea surface height and sea level rise you know, to a resolution and, and revisit rate like we've never seen. So the private sector's moved out and uh, and we're really excited. We were excited to partner with them in the past and that's continuing. And uh, and I'm just, I'm happy to sort of facilitate those those partnerships and collaborations right now. And that's why I'm, like you said, I'm working with a couple of these ocean weather and tech companies that are just stunning. Yeah, and, and, and full disclosure, both of us have advised that company tomorrow.io on some of these really exciting areas. And so it's important you know, to see that there's this sort of collaboration or collision of the private sector, academia, the government sector that you come from as well. And I I think I, I like your analogy because I think the space industry is really showing us that these folks can work together. I think at least in the weather world, Tim, and I don't know if you would agree with this and maybe even the oceanographic world as well. In past years to decades, there's been a little tension in the past about the role of the private sector and the government sector and things like weather forecasting and launching satellites. Um, but now you have a tomorrow.io that, um, that is proposing a, a low cost uh, 34 satellite system that can provide global precipitation measurement. And, and I can talk to you all day about why that's important from a weather, climate, and oceanographic standpoint uh, from, from uh, just weather, but then some of those capabilities for sea surface height and so forth are important as well. Um, how have you seen this sort of evolution of the public-private partnership? Would you agree that there was tension and is it better now? Absolutely. In fact, uh, we one of the things we were sort of um, uh, champion being a champion of if you will was this that that transition that sort of evolution and the way uh well so kelvin drugmeyer you know he was dr kelvin drugmeyer the vice president of research at oklahoma university a meteorologist was also the white house science advisor 
And, uh, and so he really understood what, what Noah was about and supported us. And the way he described it is there was this second bold era of American innovation that was occurring. And the, the first bold era was just, was that time after World War II, when m- much of the major innovation, research and development efforts, like with space exploration and supercomputing and um, nuclear power, all of that was funded and led by the government, so Office of Naval Research, uh, the national labs and, and the like. And nowadays, where is the major innovation occurring? It's in the private sector. Look at, like I said, SpaceX. These companies we're working for, Tomorrow.io, just a startup that's going to be doing things that when I was the oceanographer of the Navy, I was fighting tooth and nail to get one operational altimeter up there. And they're right. going to have 34. And I'll tell you, when we talk about the competition and national security with China, that is going to be key because altimetry, sea surface height, is, is the major input into ocean current and circulation models. And we need those models to stay ahead when it comes to the really the primary area of warfare out there, which people don't really see, and it's undersea warfare, our submarines. Yeah, this is um, talking with rear, retired retire, Rear Admiral Tim Galliadad. And I mean... If you're listening to Weather Geeks right now, you are getting a treat because you are getting some insight into what goes on as we're thinking about new observation platforms, new uh, forecasting platforms, the implications for policy, for national security, for commerce, the economy. I, I, I think a lot of times we get caught up uh, in the sort of the science and the, the satellites and the technology. But at the end of the day, the reason we are all sort of in this doing what we're doing is because, as I often say, the so what the kitchen table issues, these things that we're talking about, this, this these aren't big egghead science projects that we're doing to just to know what the sea level height is or where it's raining around the globe. These things impact the agricultural productivity, uh, gross domestic product national security, as you just heard Admiral Gallaudet said. So I I always like to sort of pause and kind of give the listeners sort of perspective on uh, on why this is happening. Um, My producers actually put something in my notes package about your time at Stennis Space Center, uh, which is in coastal Mississippi. Mm -hmm. And you, you mentioned your home down in that area. A lot of people may not realize that NASA actually has a facility there. It's called Stennis uh, Space Center. And it's also in that area, the home to the U.S. Navy and the Naval Meteorological and Oceanography Command of the National Oceanographic Office and the U.S. Naval Research Lab. They're all housed there. I think a lot of people, you're driving along I-10 headed into New Orleans or out of New Orleans, you'll see the signs, but may not really know what's going on there. Take us back to your sort of Navy world there to give us an update on what goes on there in that um, part of the world in terms of weather and oceanographic studies. Right. Well, that's the headquarters of the operational Navy meteorology and oceanography forces. And that's where I had I was a one star admiral there. I also had a job in the Pentagon as the oceanographer of the Navy. I was double hatted. And that that's a job where I was mostly concerned with the budget and the policy of of, of naval oceanography. And in the Stennis, I was I was leading my people who go out to sea and support Navy aircraft carriers and submarines, et cetera. One of the big things that we did down there uh, at that that trend that I was able to translate to NOAA, if you will, was expanding our use of drone underwater drones. That that these these uh these gliders are what they called. And we also had autonomous underwater vehicles. They're like mini submarines. 
And all of those are important to map, explore, and characterize the ocean. The Navy cares, again, because we have a very large undersea force, the submarine force, that is really would be the front lines of any kind of action. And that's basically what, what keeps us safe, is our submarine force are the, is that silent service, and they can't operate without the information of the ocean we provide. And so growing, having all these underwater drones this has just rapidly expanded our ability to understand the ocean and, and give that information to the Navy. And what we did is we were able to partner with NOAA when I was in the Navy. And then when I went to NOAA, I did the same thing. I led the effort, you mentioned these science and technology strategies, uh, to establish this unmanned maritime uh, operations center. And, and it's, it's located in Gulfport, Mississippi. And we work with Senator Wicker there and the congressional delegation and the governor, Governor Bryant, to get build a, a facility, $46 million facility that NOAA has moved into. And they're going to start kind of running all their unmanned maritime systems, surface vehicles and gliders and AUVs to characterize the ocean. And again, this is important for weather because that's the, those are the boundary conditions for the atmosphere in most of the planet, 70% of the planet. So all that information is valuable. And then that's what we did. And also interestingly, if you, if you will, uh, Marshall, you know, this part of the advancing our ability to predict and protect and assess and adapt to climate changes is, is this technology, the observing and prediction technology. And that is why we not only led an effort for unmanned, we call it uncrewed systems. We changed it because we thought a lot of great women are out there operating these, that, that was appropriate. Then uh, also artificial intelligence was a big area. And we established a NOAA AI center and also developed a strategy for that. AI is big and we've seen it really grow rapidly in terms of ocean and meteorological prediction. In fact, I know that the AMS has stood up a new journal under Dr. Amy McGovern, also at OU and a colleague of mine uh, that we work together on this. That it's gonna be all about AI and meteorology so that was something that we led to. And then there was others you mentioned, uh, like omics is really the term for de uh, basically genetics and genomics and other types of microbiological big data. And those are important for basically assessing fish stocks and species and ecosystems, which is true. Like in the past, we would just basically have to count fish, you know, nets, take nets, haul them in and, and sort of just estimate, guesstimate how much fish were in the ocean based on a sample. Nowadays, with next generation gene sequencing, you can scoop up a bucket of seawater and assess all the species in that area that quickly and non-invasively. It's pretty exciting, all these technologies. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. And we are back on the Weather Geeks podcast. I'm Dr. Marshall Shepard. And we are just getting a, a crash course really in the role of ocean science and policy, security, economy uh, with, with retired Rear Admiral Timothy Gallaudet, who someone that I've known uh, you know, of for a long time. I mean, even uh, one of his predecessors, my, our mutual colleague, Admiral David Titley, um, made me aware of you early on when I interacted with him on a report for the National Academies on climate change and, and U.S. naval operations. And then um, I, I 
oddly, just a little shout out here. I think we have a mutual friend in um, Dan Krieger and his family. I know you know the, know the Krieger family, or at least I think. Uh, That's right. Yeah. And so Dan and I worked together for many, many years at NASA Goddard Space Flight Center. Very close friend of Dan. Used to play basketball with him. So shout out Dan Krieger out there <laughs> if you're listening to Weather Geeks. But All I want right, to kind of. Yeah, I want to circle back here because I know you have your own sort of now, now that you're retired now out of the government, you have your own private consulting firm, I believe, or consulting operation. And you also mentioned that you have a podcast. So tell us about what your firm's up to and what your goals of that are and what about your podcast. Hey, thanks, Marshall. I appreciate that. Yeah, I have just a small group uh, that I call Ocean STL Consulting, and I, I, it's an effort to really continue the work I did in the Navy at NOAA, being an advocate for ocean science and technology and leadership. And I, I talked about that first and foremost at the beginning of the interview, and I really think our, our nation needs to continue to support developing leaders. And so whenever we get anchored on a, a S&T discussion, we should always be talking about bringing up the next generation as well. And that involves leadership. So leader development is I'm passionate about, and it's just sort of something I can't separate from all this tech discussion and as, as needed as is, but we have to be thinking about uh, the future and our, our, our younger workforce um, and, and, and students and interns and all of those. So I was really proud to be able to support and, and be a, a hopefully role model to the many of those that were at NOAA at the time. And I still seek them out and try to do the same. So I'm, I'm, I'm really just advising a number of really slick ocean and weather tech companies, because like I said, I saw the progression. That's the future for the government to stay ahead and be competitive and support our population, keep them safe, keep them prosperous. As And uh, and so that's, uh, the, and I'm enjoying that. We talked about tomorrow.io. Uh, I have, there's there's just some innovation out there, which is just so fun to be a part of. Uh, yesterday, I, I announced a partnership with this company called IX Blue. And I like them because they have probably the most advanced surface drone for you know ocean mapping that there is uh, this this drone is called the drix and it can go 14 knots in sea state five which is i've been there i've done hydrographic surveys on a small launch in the arabian gulf 30 years ago and whenever it was over six feet we were done we were weathered out this thing can steam through and power through and so it's going to give us an advantage. And I'm really, I'm hoping Noah, Noah gets it. They've already agreed to purchase one. And I think I'm uh, trying to get the Navy on, on that side too. Yeah. And you, you mentioned some of these companies. Oh my goodness. If you're not familiar with some of the companies that he's mentioned, definitely Google and take a look at some of the things that they're up to, because, you know, one of the things that it, it took me a while to come around to this, to be honest with you, as someone that kind of came up in the NASA world and the academic world, there's an inertia to academia and the government, uh, whereas these private innovative companies that you've mentioned are nimble, quick, and oftentimes well-supported to really try some things and sort of see what happens um, really quickly. I mean, I, for example, I spent a, a good bit of my career at NASA trying to put together uh, as a deputy project scientist a mission called the Global Precipitation Measurement Mission or GPM at NASA. Mm -hmm. Well, tomorrow.io, they're going to do what we took a decade to do. They're doing it in a few years. And so there's a lot more nimbleness. And, you know, so it's really exciting to see where some of these things are. Tell us about your tell us about your podcast. And it looks like you had something else you wanted to say as well. Yeah, no, and I just want to say that GPM, they're taking GPM and they're they're going to have it, they're going to launch it at scale, which right. is really impressive. Right, right. 
And I think, yeah, yeah I think, yeah, it's, it's a really, really fun one to watch. But you mentioned to me early on as we were talking about this podcast that you have a podcast. I want to know more about it. Hey, thanks, Marshall. Right. Well, I, I earlier talked about this NSF effort to uh, advance and network the blue economy. And uh, and that that's what my my podcast is about. Uh, that was probably my my signature effort at NOAA. I did the S&T work I talked about, but ultimately, uh, you know, we had two main priorities at NOAA, maybe actually three. One was uh, the weather model, getting the weather model to be the best in the world, the, you know, the U.S. the model. The U.S. model that you hear on the Weather Channel, and you know, getting that back to be the best in the world, and and NOAA's on track to do it. They have their new GFS FB3, and it's is performing well, and they have plans to improve now by by using this Earth Prediction Innovation Center, Epic, which is going to make it more of a community-based model where any graduate student can help update the code and and you know bring new science into that model daily. Love it. Great idea. Second one was the wet side of NOAA. It was the blue economy, sustainable use of our oceans. And the three things I talked about, understanding it better, uh, advancing its health, and uh, and then sustainably using it, promoting our fisheries in a sustainable way, uh, supporting marine transportation, supporting marine exploration, tourism and, and re recreation, those things I talked about. And so I, I, uh, I love that field. I'm very connected in it. And so my podcast is uh, about the American blue economy. And as I mentioned, there's a lot of conflict happening in it. And there's a lot of negativity, if you will, in the news. And I'm trying to really approach it from a positive angle, bring people together and having these collaborative discussions increase our understanding so that all the sides to issues get a better appreciation for the each other's views. And, uh, and that's what we're doing. Yeah, this is so fascinating talking with Admiral Gallaudet today. Where, where can people, any place you want to point the listeners to in terms of social media or any websites where they can keep tabs of you? Yeah, thanks. It's uh, it is hosted by the American Shoreline Podcast Network, ASPN, and uh, it's a part of Coastal News Today as a publication online, and that's that's where you can find it. They have a they have a wide range of really neat ocean and coastal podcast offerings, and uh, and so I'm one of them. And I have to say though, I'm, I'm biased towards mine because I have some real A-list figures. I have had the founder of professional surfing, Ian Carnes. I've had a champion and pioneer uh, woman freediver, Megan Haney Greer. I will have soon um, Peter Domenical of Woods Hole Ocean Institution, Oceanographic Institution, and, and I, I've had I have an astronaut scheduled to come on board. I mean, I have some really neat people I was able to get to know uh, in government and uh, and in, uh, in in all around the country, and I'm. I'm bringing them on and we're having a really great time exploring these issues. Yeah. And really exciting. And uh, what about you personally? Do you have any websites or your, your private company or your consulting, any websites you want to point us to or social media, Twitter, anything? Yeah. Yeah. I, I'm, I actually am ocean STL is uh, uh, there's a, we have a website and uh, I'm on LinkedIn. You okay. Can find us there. Very good. Well, we've got to end it here, but. Before we go, you Weather Geeks listeners know what time it is. It's time for the Geek of the Week. We like to highlight a scientist superstar, a great geologist, or a weather weenie at the end of every podcast. This episode's Geek of the Week is Fahad Alataibi. I hope I got that right, Fahad, who is a meteorologist in Kuwait and broadcasts his forecasts in both English and Arabic. His favorite type of weather is rain, which Kuwait doesn't get that much of in their subtropical desert climate. Kuwait averages less 
than 100 millimeters or four inches of rain per year. I feel like we've gotten that almost every single day and more here in Georgia this year. Uh, And it's mainly in the form of rain showers between November and April. Kawad, thank you for being a fan of Weather Geeks. And if you would like to be a geek of the week or know someone that should be, uh, check out our nomination page on our social media outlets as well. Tim, thank you so much for joining us on the Weather Geeks podcast. This is a great time, Marshall. Thanks for having me. And to you all that listen, hey, hope you're doing well. Uh, Stay safe out there and we'll talk to you next time on Weather Geeks. Weather Geeks.